Last week was kind of interesting. Last week, uh, what I attempted to do, we, oh, for those of you who may be here for the first time, we're going through an overview of the main concepts in The Fifth Way, which is my book um, that uh, has just been re-released in a shortened form here. And so we thought it would be a good idea to go through those concepts and see if we can lock them down, because those concepts, as they come from Jesus' Aramaic message, which is an Eastern Hebrew understanding of Jesus' message, because he was an Eastern Jew, um, undergirds everything we do here at The Effect. And so it's good to get to know those principles so we can see how it is that we understand living this life that Jesus has for us that will take us to recovery in one way, shape, or form because everybody's recovering from something. All right? I'm supposed to say a big amen at the end of that. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Don't be afraid to do that from time to time. <laughs> that too. Okay. Um, Last week, what I, we were right up to the point where I'm talking about the five ways, the four ways that precede the fifth way. And what I wanted to do is give an overview of that. And it was a big bite. And in some people's estimation, it was too big a bite and uh, kind of went too far, too fast. So what I want to do is to pull back a little bit and um, kind of go over some of the things that we talked about yesterday. And one issue in particular, which is supposed to have just been a sidebar, it was just something that I threw in. You don't have to pay extra for this stuff. It just comes to you. And uh, I was talking about the Jewish conception of Satan. And that apparently ruffled some feathers, kicked up some dust at the bottom of the, of the uh, aquarium, which is, as most of you know, I love to really do. One person told me that uh, it was the first time that she ever left on a Sunday morning not completely won over by what I said. And I told her, that's great. That is perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And she said that it caused some lively discussions with her spouse and with others. That is so great. You know what? I would rather that you left here, not completely won over, wondering what the heck I'm talking about and talking about it. They went home and looked stuff up. Did he really have it right? And they came back and said, you know, that's what it said. I go, amazing. When I, a, a lifetime ago, back in the mid-80s, I was teaching middle school, if you can believe it. I was teaching English and social studies and music. And I remember putting out one concept. And the next morning, this little girl came back to me and said, Mr. B, Mr. B, that's what they used to call me. She says, I looked up what you said, and it was just like you said. I said, what do you think, I'm lying to you, dear? <laughs> this is great. Check it out. I would rather all of that disagreement or that consternation, that disturbance happen, then you just come up to me afterwards and say, hey, that was a lovely sermon, Pastor, and you never think about it again. What we're doing in here is not designed just to hit you in the spot that you think you already know. What we're doing in here is not designed to just give you something that is familiar and comfortable. Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus is neither of those things. We've turned him into that. We've turned him into this cuddly teddy bear. We've turned him into that. But if you were there with him, if you read between the lines or just read the lines themselves carefully in the New Testament, you're finding that he was blowing people away. He was anything but comfortable. And as soon as you thought you were getting comfortable with Jesus, as soon as you thought you had him figured out, he would throw you for a loop. In fact, he'd almost discern the exact moment that you were feeling comfortable. And then he'd say this crazy thing that would just send you back off into orbit. We're here 
to be disturbed at times. I hate to say it that way, but we're here to try to grind on things and to understand things from a new perspective, to push the envelope, to go beyond the pale. This is why we're here. This is what Jesus' ministry was about. He was trying to take people right into the presence of his Father. And you can't do that from the place that you think you already know. Something has to change. It has to go in a different direction. Now, when I was studying the Christian, Christian origins and the Hebrew roots of Christianity starting 20, 25 years ago, I had to go outside my church because either the church that I grew up in, the Catholic church, or the church that I adopted, the evangelical church, I wasn't hearing any of this stuff from those churches. They taught exactly what they believed. However narrow or myopic that was, that's what they taught. It was almost as if they were hiding any other point of view, hiding any other stream of thought. But see, I don't believe it's my job to tell you what you can study. I don't believe it's my job to limit what it is that you can know. I think it's my job to do the best I can with the study that I've done, with the insight that God's Spirit has given me, to open you up to multiple streams of thought. So you can bring it all in. You can take the journey yourself through that disturbance, through that disorientation, and come out to the other side, a person really strong in their faith. Because any faith that depends on the maintenance of ignorance is not worth having. And it's not going to be there for you when the storms of life come. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. You build your house on the rock. You sink your foundations deep. And the only way you can do that is by drilling. <laughs> we got to drill. You know? We have to be open. We have to be people who learn to find truth where it is, where it lives, and not just where we expect it to be. And so all of these things are part of what's going on here. And so bringing up the, the Jewish conception of Jesus, Hasatan in, in, in uh, Hebrew, or Satana. What, what's that? What did I say? I'm so sorry. See where I'm going now? I'm, yeah, you're paying attention. Please pay attention. Correct me can even ask questions. Today we can ask questions because this is important. The Jewish concept of, of Satan, Hasatan or Satana in Aramaic, is different than ours. And I wanted to bring it up for a very specific reason. For those of you who weren't here last week, there are three main differences that the, Jew, that the Jews have as they look at, at Satan. And the first one is the name itself. Hasatan is a title. It literally means the Satan. It means adversary. It means challenger. It means the one who leads astray, the one who diverts attention. And in the Jewish conception, that can be our own inclination to evil. It can be the things that we do that lead us astray, the consequences of our actions. But it can also be an angel of God. And I want to stress that because I said it that way, it doesn't mean that I don't believe there is a personal being that we call Satan. right? But when you think about it, the sum of the adversity that faces us in our lives is both. It's not just what comes from outside in. It's also what comes from inside out. We have a human nature that is bifurcated, you know. It's already moving in separate directions and divided. We have divided loyalties. And so our own inclination, our fears, our needs drive us in directions that are not the direction that Jesus is teaching us to go. 
as well as other forces. So that's the first thing, that there's this dual nature to Satan. You know? The second thing is, is that we are the only creatures that God created from a Jewish point of view who have free will, who have the ability to make a choice, a free choice. Angels to the Jews don't have that ability either because they were created that way without free will or because they are so close, they are so transparent to God's throne that there's no other possible choice for them. They see things too clearly. They're not living between heaven and earth the way human beings are. They don't have a physical body that is sometimes in conflict with the spiritual. And so they don't have free will. So for them to conceive of an angel who would go against God's will is inconceivable. You know, it's alien to their culture. So that leads us to the third point. That Satan, who is this adversary, who is the one who leads astray, is actually God's employee. He works for God, not in opposition to God. He is a necessary part of, of, of our lives here. Because unless our choice is really real, unless there's friction, unless there's challenges, unless there's some kind of resistance you know, then the choice really isn't real. Satan, in the Jewish conception, makes the choice real. Activates our free will, if you want to look at it that way. But is actually working as the other half, the other side. If you think of a trial where you've got both attorneys, defense and prosecution, there's got to be a prosecutor to make the defense work, right? And the system has to work. They kind of look at it that way. So it's very different. So you might be thinking, why in the world even bring it up? What good does it do to bring up these things? All they do is disturb us. All they do is send us off in different areas. Here's the reason, and it's really, really central to me. I see so much fear in Christians. I see so much fear in general in people. But especially in Christians, we fear so many things. We fear the end times. We fear prophecy. We fear what's coming. We fear God. We fear God because we have been taught to look at him through a legal lens. As if there's something that we need to do, something we need to perform, a standard we need to hit before we get God's approval. And even though we say we're saved by grace, I see this over and over and over again, this wondering if we're good enough yet, wondering if we can really get there. And we fear the devil. We fear the one who can take us and snatch us and pull us away. And there are scriptures that make it sound exactly that way. But if you factor in this Jewish conception, it starts to take the fear out. And taking the fear out is the central piece. It is the most important piece. Take a look at 1 John chapter 4. It's in your um, bulletins. Rico's going to put it up on the screens. This one little paragraph, to me, is a central, central piece. If we don't get this, we're never going to get kingdom. We're never going to get what Jesus is talking about. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. 
But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. See, this Jewish concept of Satan can start to remove the fear. Why? Because it emphasizes that we always have a choice. It is our choice. The devil has no power over us that we don't give him. It is our choice. We can freely choose God or we can freely choose not God. But nothing can separate us from God's love. Paul told us that beautifully. We need to know that. We need to be able to stand on that. And it takes us right to James 1. So look at, let's look at James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And you know what another word for that trial is? It's adversity. When you encounter various adversities, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James and Matthew are the most Jewish books in the Bible. And this is very Jewish right here. The adversity, satana, hasatan, is an agent of maturity, an agent of completing our faith. Without those trials, without that adversity, we don't grow. We don't grow up. We stay kids. You know? It's not to be feared. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. James is telling us we should welcome you don't need to seek them out. They're going to come to us. Okay? Let's not become self-flagellators or anything like that. We don't need to do any of that stuff. Life is perfectly capable of giving us adversity and trials. Helped by Satan, helped by ourselves in the Jewish idea, but it's going to come. How do we react to it? Does it overwhelm us? Does it fill us with fear? Does it have us screaming at the universe, Why God? Why me? Or can we turn that around and see this is an agent for change? This is God's messenger that's going to help me to choose something that is going to grow me up and take me to the next level. It's not to be feared. And not only that, Jesus tells us there's only one way to the Father. One way. This way that he lived, this way that he loved, this way that he related, the journeys that he took, he said, this is the way. Look at John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Why? Because they've seen Jesus. This is at the point that they're freaking out because he's telling them that he's going away. Show us the Father and we'll be fine. You don't need to see the Father. You've seen me. I and the Father are one. And this way to the Father that I am living and showing you is the only way that you can go. Nothing else is going to get you there. And here's the thing that we have to understand. Father and kingdom are interchangeable concepts. You can't have one without the other. The way to kingdom is the way to the Father. And the way to the Father is the way to the kingdom because kingdom is being absolutely immersed in Father's presence, to become one with Father's will, delight, desire, and deepest purpose. And Jesus says there's only one way to get there. Jesus' way of living life right here and right now is kingdom, is Father. 
because everything that he does is as if Father were doing it. It's one and the same. You get the connection points here? What he's trying to get across to us? You know? To live the way Jesus lived is indistinguishable from Father. And there are no shortcuts. There's nothing else you can do. It's this way or you will never be able to see what's really true in life, in your life. Take a look here at John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you. You know what the word there really is there in Aramaic? It's amen. Amen, amen, I say to you. Truly, truly. Amen just means that you are ratifying. You're showing a strong truth. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you. I am the door. Wait, I skipped a space. I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Now skip down to verse 7. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is using an image that they would have all been very intimately familiar with as poor rural Galileans. Because the shepherds would build a ramshackle enclosure for the sheep at night. Sheep are not too bright, so you only need a little wall and they won't jump over it, right? So they'd, they'd build up sticks and rocks and, do, and they'd usually build it in the side of a hillside and build out three walls with a space that was the door that they would drive the sheep in and out of. And sometimes they'd actually fashion some sort of gate. Most often, they would just sleep in the doorway and the sheep wouldn't step over him either, the shepherd, Literally, Jesus says, I am this door. I am this way. The only legitimate way in and out of the sheepfold, into the safety of the evening and the night, and out to the sustenance of the pasture by day. The only way in and out is through this door. If you climb up over the wall, if you take a shortcut, if you come in by any other way, it's not going to work. And yes, he's primarily talking here about the shepherds of his faith, the Pharisees, the religious authorities, or the prophets that were coming in name of Messiah themselves, usually zealots who were fomenting revolution and sedition against Rome. He said, all those other ways that you're looking at, what they're telling you in terms of a legal understanding, what they're talking to you about in terms of a political understanding has nothing to do with this kingdom I'm talking about. This is the way. This is the only way. Nothing else is going to get you where you want to go. And not only that, this can't be taught. This can't be transferred. No one can give it to you, and you can't buy it. It has to be lived through. It has to be experienced through. This is the only way you're going to understand. Because what Jesus is describing here is literally a rite of passage. A rite of passage. You're familiar with that term, right? But most of us don't really know what a rite of passage is anymore because our culture here in the West and especially in America doesn't have any true rites of passage anymore. The hallmark of a real rite of passage are three phases. The first one is separation. The second one is transition. And the third one is reincorporation. If you don't have all three, you don't have a real rite of passage Probably the clearest way that I can explain to you is from the Aboriginal, Australian Aborigines practice of a walkabout. If you've ever heard of a walkabout, this is where the boy in the village becomes a man, is recognized as a man. And what they do when the boy is of age, 
They take him out of the village. They take the men, take him out of the village, take him out of the company of women, out of the company of his siblings, out of everything that he knows that has sustained him, that he's familiar with and comfortable with, and they take him out into the bush. That's the separation. That creates a whole heck of a lot of disturbance, but also an excitement because the boy has seen this cycle played out with his older brothers and, and cousins and so on and so forth. And so here he is being taken out into the bush. Out in the bush, he has something that he needs to do. Sometimes this is called liminality or a liminal experience, which just is a Latin word for threshold. You're crossing a threshold into another world that you don't understand, where all the rules are different, where things have to be done differently. Now, in Aboriginal culture, the children are taught what are called song lines. These are songs that are the stories of the creator gods of, of their particular culture who are creating all of the earth and the forms and the landscape that they are familiar with around them. And in these songs are embedded all the landmarks that are around them. And so when the boy is taken out into the bush, he has just set loose he has to go and take his walkabout. He has to travel. But by reciting the song lines that, he has, that have been burned into his memory since as early as he can remember, he can literally follow all of the landmarks, all of the markers. And by stitching together the song lines of this tribe and the next tribe and the tribe after that, amazingly, Aborigines can travel hundreds of kilometers without any navigation, without any maps, without anything, just reciting the song lines in their head. And this is what this boy is expected to do. He's expected to take this journey on his own. And it's not without risk. He could die out there. It is a perilous journey. But if he takes the journey, if he completes the tasks that are laid ahead of, uh, uh, before him and comes back again, he is reincorporated back into the village, but now with the understanding that he's a man and no longer a boy. Something fundamentally has changed. In that transition, he now looks at life differently. He experiences differently. And he brings something of value to the tribe, to the village that wasn't there before. Now, those of you who know anything about the hero's journey have heard me speak about the hero's journey. You know that this is exactly what the hero's journey is all about. It has the same elements. If you think of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, she's separated from black and white Kansas. She enters a world that she knows nothing about. There are tasks that she needs to complete. And then at the end, when she finally realizes that she always had the ruby slippers on, she can go home. And when she gets home, she brings something with her. It's not the same Dorothy who comes back. It's a different Dorothy, a mature Dorothy, a Dorothy who's not going to be a goof-off anymore. She's going to actually have some value on the farm. And she's a Dorothy who can say that the next time I go looking for my heart's desire, I won't go looking any further than my own backyard. Because if it's not there, I never really lost it to begin with. This is the rite of passage. This is the hero's journey. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. And if you look at the shape of Jesus' life, we talked about his 40 days in the desert, in the wilderness last week. It's a rite of passage. To separate himself, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And out there, he goes through the transition. He goes through the liminal experience. He is tested. He is tempted. He hits that place of adversity, that place where he can be led astray. Decision points, clear choices that he has to make. Symbolically, three 
that symbolize all the choices, all the human drives and compulsions that we need to deal with. And when he comes back, he comes back understanding kingdom and father in a way that he didn't understand before. Does that sound weird for you? Because this is Jesus we're talking about. But the scriptures tell us, scriptures tell us, he grew in wisdom and stature. He learned the way we learn. He showed us what can happen inside a human body. This is possible. And when he came back, Mark 1.15, what does he say? The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The waiting is over. This is what he's trying to get across, trying to help us to understand. And he needed to take the journey. We need to take the journey and get that across to ourselves. The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. See, when we look at Jesus, he feels dangerous to us. He feels like he's calling us out into something else. Because Jesus represents and lives pure freedom. Pure freedom. Not freedom bound by anything. But nothing but pure freedom can interface with the Father, connect with the Father, be present to the Father. Because anything limiting, limiting us takes us out of the Father's presence. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword, which flies so in the face of my peace I give you. The Prince of Peace, right? Two different words in Aramaic. The Prince of Peace, the peace that he comes to bring us is shalom. The other peace that he did not come to bring us is calm and tranquility. He didn't come to bring us that. Do you know that we can have shalom even in the midst of disturbance? We have to be able to make these distinctions. If we think that because we're disturbed or because we're going into a disorienting, disquieting place that something's wrong with our faith, faith, something's wrong with our walk with God, then we're never going to go where we need to go, where Jesus is really taking us. The rich young man who comes and asks, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And he says, eventually, sell everything you have Give it to the poor and come follow me. He was trying to do it through the law. He says, I've kept these commandments all my life, Lord, but I know there's something missing. What is it? Sell everything you have. Let go of the things that you're clinging to. Those are the things that are limiting. But it feels too risky. It feels too dangerous. I can't do that yet. He couldn't do that yet. Okay. There's tomorrow and the day after that. Hopefully, you at some point will be ready that your desire will be greater than your fear and it will propel you forward into the place of the disturbance that is so fearful. Jesus is trying to get us to understand that we need to go into this transition place, this liminal experience, cross the threshold, and experience this disorienting and disturbing truth, only because we're not familiar with it yet. But as soon as we get familiar with it, it's not disturbing anymore. Then it's time to get disturbed again. Because God is always showing us another facet, another phase of himself. For some of you last week, my discussion about Hasatan was a liminal experience. It was disturbing. That's okay. It's fine. It's as it should be. Go home and study. Look things up. And if you don't come to the understanding that I have or the Jews have, that's fine. Marion was asking me, you always tell me what the Jews think. Are the Jews right? (laughs) Truth is, I don't know. I don't know if they're right, quote unquote. 
but they bring new facets, new ways of looking at things that need to be brought in. After all, they wrote our scriptures. Got to give them a little bit of weight, huh? At least consider it and see. But what you come up with, what you're convinced of, is what you're convinced of. And if it allows you to sink your foundation deep into the bedrock when the storms of life come, you can face them without fear, and you know that you know everything is going to be okay, then your faith is strong. Even if you don't think the way somebody else does, the way I do. Jesus isn't after that. If you're not being disturbed, you're not taking a rite of passage. You're not taking the hero's journey. The disturbance is the key that you're starting to see something different that you've never seen before. I wanted to read you something from the Gospel of Thomas. Many of you won't be familiar with the Gospel of Thomas. It's not canonical, okay? It's not in the Bible. So it doesn't carry the same weight or force of the, of the canonical scriptures. But it was discovered in about 1946 in, in uh, Egypt, and it's uh, written in a language called Coptic, and it's a saint's gospel. It's just about a hundred sayings of Jesus. No narrative, no story about his life or anything. Just Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. And some of them are very familiar. They sound just like the one, the sayings that you'll find in the Gospels, the four Gospels. Other times they're way out in the deep end. But sometimes they just say the same thing that you find in our canonical Gospels, but in a little bit different way that adds more light, more understanding, I think. See what you think. Gospel of Thomas You only find it in your bulletins. This is a saying too. Jesus said, those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. And when they find, they will be disturbed. And when they are disturbed, they will marvel and will rule over all. A little weird, huh? But this is the same thing that we're trying to get at right now. The rich young man comes to Jesus and when he can't be disturbed, when he's not willing to, to be disturbed and disoriented to that degree. What does Jesus turn and tell his, his followers? It says, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And then they're disturbed. Because that goes against their cultural understanding. But he's trying to get us to understand, get them to understand, us by extension. The things that you cling on to, the things that you hold on to, become the, total, the totality of your reality. You won't be able to see the Father that stands unseen behind that reality if you're clinging on to this. It doesn't work that way. You know, he's got to be able to let go. Clinging to the familiar blocks the Father's view. And we don't realize how much this stuff blocks us. We don't realize how much stuff we carry around. (laughs) Do you remember the movie called The Jerk? (laughs) late 1970s with Steve Martin. (laughs) You know exactly where I'm going then, you know? I actually looked up that scene. It's a great scene. If if you're not familiar with the jerk, Steve Martin is kind of an imbecile. He's a half-wit, kind of a Forrest Gump kind of character, if if you're more familiar with him. And through all the weird things that happen, he ends up with a whole bunch of money. He marries his sweetheart who knew him before he had any money. And they're at this scene, they're at the point of breaking up because too much has changed and she just wants him the way he used to be and on and on. And so in his hissy fit, in his his breakup speech, he says, well, I'm going to go then. And I don't need any of this. And I don't need any of this stuff. And I don't need you. I don't need anything. Except this, and he picks up an ashtray. 
And that's it. And that's the only thing I need is this. I don't need this or this, just this ashtray and this paddle game. The ashtray and the paddle game, and that's all I need. And this remote control. The ashtray, the paddle game, and the remote control, and that's all I need. And these matches. The ashtray and these matches and the remote control and the paddle ball and this lamp. (laughs) The ashtray, the paddle game, and the remote control and the lamp, that's all I need. And that's all I need, too. I don't need one other thing, not one. I need this. And he picks up a chair. He's got all this stuff he's carrying now. The paddle game and the chair, remote control, the masters for sure, and this, and he picks up a magazine. That's all I need. The ashtray, the remote control, the paddle game, the magazine, and the chair, and he walks outside. I don't need one other thing except my dog, and the dog is walking toward him on the sidewalk, growls at him and keeps on going. Well, I don't need my dog. I love that scene because it's so human. Even when we say we're going to get rid of all the things that we don't need, and we're trying to be unattached, and we're trying to be strong, we're picking up stuff all along the way, and it accrues and it accrues, and suddenly we're burdened down with all this stuff, and we don't even realize we're doing it. But Jesus looks at us, and he sees all the stuff. Sell the stuff. You say you want to follow me. You say you want to go where I go. Look at all this stuff. You can't go. It's too constricting. See? He's got his stuff right here. Ricky, you can keep your stuff. We like your stuff. It's all this stuff. What are we going to do with all this stuff? Oh, my gosh. You know? By continuing to carry the stuff, by continuing to identify with the stuff, we simply can't see the Father, see where he is, because we won't be free enough. I always think of the pioneers going westward across country. Sometimes we romanticize them and say, how wonderful that would be. You get into this beautiful valley with the river running through it, the sunshine, and you can just pick a spot, squat down, build a house, a cabin, and it's yours. No mellow roofs, no taxes. You know, nobody telling you what color you can paint your house because there's no association. How great would that be? No bank, no mortgage. Until the Indians attack. And there's no 911. And there's no National Guard. And when the prairie fires come, there's no county fire department and there's no helicopter dropping water, you know. To be perfectly free is to be perfectly at risk. We trade security for freedom all the time, don't we? Every time there's a terrorist attack, we give away whole gobs of freedom to new regulation that's going to keep us more secure. But with every piece of security, with every law, we got more stuff we're carrying around. And we're less free, and we're less able to see what really is free. Because we can hardly even conceive of that kind of freedom. It just feels scary. I can't go there. It's too scary. You know? Jesus comes back from the wilderness completely free. Speaking of a world that his followers couldn't understand. He tells them something at Luke 17. He says the kingdom is not going to be out there someplace for you to find. You're not going to go and acquire it. Look, here it is or there it is. He says the kingdom is within you. It's among you. It's in the midst of. And take a look at the way it's stated here in the Gospel of Thomas. The third saying. Jesus said, if your leaders say to you, look, the Father's kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say it's in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the Father's kingdom is inside you and outside you. And when you know yourselves 
then you will be known and you will understand that you are a children of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you live in poverty and you are the poverty. When will we know ourselves, who we really are? Wednesday night, we're reading Richard Rohr. We have our book study and we came across a passage and I want to read this to you. He writes, therefore, we are led to the conclusion that growth in the spiritual life, and this is surprising to capitalists, he says, takes place not by acquisition of something new. It isn't like the acquisition of new information, which some call spiritual capitalism. In reality, our growth is hidden. It's accomplished by the release, the release of our current defense postures, by the letting go of fear and our attachment to self-image. Thus we grow by subtraction much more than by addition. It's not a matter of more and better information. The wisdom traditions say that information itself is not the key. One of our defenses, once our defenses are out of the way and we are humble and poor, truth is allowed to show itself. It is not acquired. It shows itself when we are free from ideology, fear, and anger. I know, quote unquote, won't get us anywhere. The truth is, I don't know anything. Our real hero is Forrest Gump. (laughs) Perhaps he was a metaphor for beginner's mind. And then the key sentence, only non-knowing is spacious enough to hold and not distort the knowing that is possible. That is a really dense sentence. One more time. Only non-knowing is spacious enough to hold and not distort the knowing that is possible. Non-knowing. Selling everything we think we know about ourselves, about life, about religion, theology, God. All that does is restrict. God is too big to be contained by what we can hold in our heads. He's too big to be contained by a theology or a worldview or anything that we can construct. If we're not willing to be disturbed, to let go of that, to move into a place of non-knowing, it's the non-knowing that is large enough. I used an analogy Wednesday night that when I first started learning guitar, I learned about five chords, you know, all the basic ones, D, G, E minor, C, you know, and I wanted to write songs right away. So I started writing songs, but I only knew five chords. So guess what happened? All my songs started sounding the same because they're all based on five chords. Well, as I started to learn more, more chords, I got a little bit more under my belt. Yeah, I can move around a little bit. But what I started to realize was that if I just put away the guitar, leaned it against the wall, and just let the melody flow in my head, it could go anywhere it wanted to go, unrestricted, completely free. And once I had that and a lyric then I could sit down and figure out the chords that went with that. It was the other way around. This is what we're doing to ourselves. We know five chords. We're living our lives with five chords. And the melody that we can hear through those five chords is restricted, and it sounds the same. And even though it feels familiar and safe, it won't take us where we need to go until we put down the instruments, put down what we think we know, sell everything we have, and let God's melody just play through wherever it wants to go. And then we adapt our lives to that truth. 
that's the way. Rohr calls it the difference between circumference and center, that we live our lives on the circumference, on the skin, on the edges of things, in all the details lost in the weeds of our lives. And we don't take the time to dive into the center. But the only way you're going to dive into the center is to make a hole in the circumference, to let go of all of that stuff that binds us up and owns us so that we can move into the center. Last week, what I was trying to do with my metaphor, the four ways and the fifth way, is exactly the same. The four ways are the ways that we make decisions, choose and acquire things that we need in this physical life, on the circumference. Our physical needs are met through these four ways. But Jesus brings us a fifth way that has nothing to do with the other four. In fact, it turns every one of those on its head. It turns them inside out, downside up, and backside front. And unless we're willing to go that way, we'll never be able to move into the center, which is the experience of the Father, everything that Jesus is. Just a couple of paragraphs before, Rohr writes this. The Cherokee chiefs said to their young braves, why do you spend time in brooding? Don't you know you are being driven by great winds across the sky? Don't you know you're part of a much bigger pattern, but you're not in control of it any more than you would be of great winds? You and I are a small part of a much bigger mystery. We're part of an immense purpose that we don't always see. How can we? We don't have the same perspective. But it's there. And we get depressed and we get so bound up and we think everything is lost, but we don't realize we're being driven by these great winds. And this reminded me finally of Thomas Merton, who was one of my absolute spiritual heroes 20 years ago as I was just getting started, because he was one who took this journey we're talking about. He was a hedonistic young man, you know, just into it for all he could get in New York and France where he studied for a while. And everything seemed to go barren to him. Nothing was scratching the itch that he was looking to have scratched. And so finally, through a series of spiritual awakenings, he moves to Kentucky and enters a monastery there, a Trappist monastery. But he doesn't just enter the community. He wants to become a hermit within the community. And so he goes out and finally is granted his wish that he can be completely separated, even from the members of his brotherhood. And later on in life, he had to go into town, into Louisville, the capital of, of Kentucky, for a doctor's appointment. And he's standing on the corner of 4th and Walnut. And he's just, it's middle, middle of the shopping district, and he's looking at all these people. And he has this experience there that changes everything for him. Listen to what he writes. He says, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. 
shining like the sun. He had to take a journey, separate himself, join a monastery, become a hermit, to find out that he never had to take the journey, join a monastery, separate himself. But in a way, he did. That journey, that disturbance, that experience brought him around full circle to realize that we are all connected and that we have forgotten who we really are, that we're all walking around shining like the sun. We are all being driven by great winds across the sky. And we've forgotten. And Jesus said, when you've forgotten, you live in poverty and you are the poverty. The truth of who we are can only be found in the process of this journey, that we are creatures born of free will. We have the ability to choose love, to choose God. No one else gets to do this. That we're all shining like the sun, driven by these great winds. We'll never be able to uncover our true identity, this identity that Jesus has for us, until we take the journey, until we take the walkabout, until we're willing and allow ourselves to be disturbed enough to sell everything, to let it all go. Meet the adversary. Let him do his job. And learn to start welcoming the job of the adversary. Because as we do this more and more and we see the maturing of our faith, we will lose our fear more and more. We will become perfected in love. And at that moment, we enter kingdom and not a moment before. There is no fear in kingdom. How could there be? Complete, face-to-face, spirit-to-spirit with Father's presence. How could there be fear? If Father is who Jesus says he is, and I believe to the core of my being, that he is who Jesus says he is. If I have fear, then something is still standing in the way. I have not allowed myself to move into that disturbance enough to get to the other side and find out what's really real here and now and what's possible in this relationship that Jesus calls kingdom. Let's pray. Father, here we sit. We sort of know the things that we still cling to and care around, many things we don't. We know that we're stressed and anxious. Sometimes we see that as fear, sometimes we don't. Help us to become more aware of the things that separate us from you. Help us to become completely convinced that nothing on your side, separates you from us. That it's we who do the separating through our fear. We believe, we believe. Help our unbelief, Lord. Help us to take us through to a place where we know that the kingdom is here and now, that you are here. Never leave, never forsake. Father, speaking for myself, and I think everyone here, We want to know you better. We want to be completely transparent to you. Take us wherever you want us to go. We give you permission to play any melody you want in our minds and our hearts to take us to where we can really, really say that we are one with you. And we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.